right? You can open your Bibles. Luke chapter 4. I'm going to read it, but we're really not going to be in Luke here this morning. We're going to use this to launch off. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Ushers are coming. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. This is the fifth and now final week on this text. Let me read it and and, uh, pray and we'll, we'll get in. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Let's pray. God, I need your help. I need your spirit, Lord. last thing I want to give these people is just a bunch of my own words. God, we're desperately hungry. We're desperately in need of satisfaction at the deepest level. And I know that only you can get there, God. I pray that you would use this message, use this time to reach us the deepest places. I pray for people that are trapped there, people that feel chained there, people that feel hopeless, stuck. God, I ask that you would use this sermon to set them free, that you would use our time together here. Your spirit would meet us, to set us free. <clears throat> Lord, we, we've watched you win now, four weeks in a row here in this text watched you win. But we know that you haven't won just for yourself only. You didn't defeat the devil for yourself only. You defeated him for us. And so, Lord, I I pray, if there's any place where the enemy is hounding, any place where the enemy is getting the upper hand in this room, would you please come? All you have to do is just flex your muscle and the chains snap. You're gracious and you're glorious. Please 
today, show us in a fresh way the glory of your grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Um, so last week, we took verse 13 of, of this text. Forgive me if, if you're just kind of dropping in, um, you know, or maybe you've been in the back, because I realize that all these have been building off of one another. But last week, we took verse 13 of Luke 4, and we trace we traced it. It's kind of this unfolding, intensifying battle between the devil and the son. We traced it all the way to the opportune time of the cross. And we watched Jesus win. At every point, he wins. But, even at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the devil is not done. The devil is not done. He, he, he merely shifts his strategy from the Son attacking him to the church, attacking you and I. So this morning, I want to follow this shift in the devil's strategy. And I want to move from this text in Luke 4 that shows him attacking the Son. And now I want to move from that and, 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 and broaden out the discussion of temptation and satanic warfare by looking at how we the church are to fight this. How we the church are in this. How he's come for us and what are we supposed to do about it. To set up this discussion, um, Revelation 12. In fact, I'd like you to turn there because I'm going to read a significant amount of it. Revelation's last book of the Bible. It's easy to find. Chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 12, about is where I'll be. But Revelation 12, I want to start here because it kind of depicts this whole shift for us in in vivid language. Um, How the devil moves from the sun... To the church. So I want to set us up for this sermon by reading this to you. Revelation 12. Now, if you're familiar with Revelation, you know, get ready. I mean, this is like full on, you know, you just enter a different world at this point. There are dragons flying around and stars are flying across the sky. So it's, it's pretty awesome. Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. This woman, just so you know, I believe is Israel. Twelve stars, the idea of twelve tribes. So this this woman is pregnant. Israel is pregnant. The Messiah is coming from Israel. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. This is Luke 1 and 2, just so you know. Here comes the Messiah from Israel. She's crying out. Here he is, the child. And another sign, verse 3, appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Pause there for a moment and just imagine that scene. 
This is gruesome. This is brutal. What you have here is there at the exit point of Israel's womb as the Messiah is about to come onto the scene. The devil is waiting. The dragon is waiting with fanged mouth open wide to devour this child. Coming for the son. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child. Jesus. One who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Resurrection, ascension. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and the dragon, um, and, the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And then the chapter closes in verse 17, describing the dragon as furious and indicating that he has gone, quote, off to make war on the rest of the woman's offspring, namely the church, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So there it is, the shift in the devil's strategy, the shift in his warfare from the Son to the church. He has come down now. He's been thrown down now and he knows his time is short and he has gone off to make war on us. That's what he's doing in this room right now. Now I want to make two observations at this point. First, the son's victory over Satan at the cross sets in motion and secures the church's victory over the same. Do you hear me on that? The Son's victory sets in motion and secures ours. That's the meaning of verse 11. They have conquered Him. How? By their own strength? By their own willpower? Nope. By the blood of the Lamb. He wins. So all who trust in the blood win with Him. His victory is our victory. Last week, all we did was watch Him win. Well, last week sets up this week where now we start to walk in that win. 
It's awesome. Second thing I want to note. Just as the son had to face the devil in the wilderness and hold his no firm to the end, even unto death, so also it is with the church. It's the same kind of warfare, shifting strategies, shifting, moving his crosshairs from Christ to the church, but he's coming at us the same way and we have to deal with the same kind of stuff. The woman, you read there in, in verse 6, is, is fleeing into the wilderness. This is a wilderness strife and struggle here. And then we read the, the other part of verse 11. You see, it doesn't just end with, they conquered the dragon by the blood of the Lamb. The verse there continues. And by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So the saints are in the wilderness fighting the devil. And they, just like their Savior, have to hold on to the cross and the way of the cross even unto death. That is how it's going to work for us. That's our call. Now, just as the devil made war on the Son, so now then he is making war on you and me. As I tried to imagine what the devil might be thinking, which you know perhaps is a scary thing to do. Um, although C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book in that regard. Um, I started thinking about what, what, what was he thinking here? Is he shifting his, his crosshairs now, putting them on, on us, on the church? I think this would be something that's going on in his mind. He, if I couldn't keep the sun from going to the cross. Okay, I lost that battle. He went, he died, he rose. Fine. If I couldn't keep the sun from going to the cross, perhaps I can keep the church from holding on to it. Heaven may yet still be empty. The bridegroom may yet still be brideless. God may yet still be foiled because the cross of Christ only benefits those who hold to it to the end, even unto death. So if I can get them to crack there, I still win later. Therefore, I'm going to bait my hook. I'm going to turn up the heat I'm going to see if I can't just make this church now crack. That's what he's doing with you. He's furious and he's come off to make war on us. I mean, there's this picture where in in the other part of Revelation 12 where this just flood of water coming from his mouth and these accusations and things just trying to surround the church, overwhelm the church. It's what he's going to do. It's what he's doing here now. And as with the son, he, he's kind of think about how he's going to attack us, what he's going to do. He, he pushes on those same three pressure points that I've noted a number of times now. Defamation of character. Get us to question who God is. Is he actually good? Is he actually in control? Is he for me? I don't know. Identity crisis. Get us to question who God says we are now in Christ. Am I loved? Am I secure? Am I valued? I don't know. 
Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll find my identity somewhere else, like work or something. He'll get us going anywhere but to the stable identity we have in Jesus. Tyranny of the urgent. Get us to question God's timing. So, we spent much of our time. I, I was thinking about this from the moment I started this little mini-series, okay? I was thinking about this point. We spent much of our time looking in Luke 4 at, at, at how Jesus is presented as standing where both Adam and Israel before him fell. We spent a lot of time on that, and, and there's a reason, there's a method to my madness. It's because I didn't want us to mistake that, that what we are seeing in Jesus is just kind of an example, just someone to follow. What we are actually witnessing when we trace biblical history out and realize Adam didn't do it, Israel didn't do it, everyone after, everyone in between didn't do it, couldn't do it. What we are witnessing in Jesus is something utterly unprecedented. He is doing what you and I could never do. That's the point of Luke 4. Before it's ever, here's how you fight the devil. Here's a quick little manual for resisting temptation. I'll give you a few pointers and you take it from there. That's not what's happening in Luke 4. Before it is anything about Jesus, our example, it is all about Jesus, our Savior. That we are watching him go where no man has gone before, if you will. Telling the devil, no, to the end. Nobody's done that. And so if we are going to start opposing the devil, experiencing victory against the devil, it starts there. It starts, actually, ironically, by saying, I can't resist. I can't do this. That's the first step. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. The ones who say, I cannot do this. Jesus has to come by His Spirit and do it in and through me. I participate in His victory through His Spirit by faith. That's the only way. That's the only way. You're going to spin your wheels fighting sin, resisting temptation. If you don't start here, You're going to find, like I said, in the end, that in all of your resistance, you've actually only come to resemble the devil more. Because it was that self-exalting, self-adoring pride that caused the devil to fall in the first place. So, ironically, counterintuitively, spiritual warfare begins like this. I can't do it. But Jesus, I read Luke 4, you can. Do it for me. Do it through me. Please. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 and verses 17 and 18 make this plain for us. Let me read it to you. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, it's us, he himself likewise, Jesus, partook of the same things. He came into flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Do you hear what's being said here? We're following the move from Savior to example. What we see first is that we are enslaved, you guys. It's not like he can just kind of lead lead ahead and, and we can run after him. It's we have chains. And he comes in and in his death and resurrection bursts the bonds that held us. Then we're free. Then we can start to, to follow after him a little more. Then we have a high priest who knows what it's like to resist temptation. Comes in and helps us do it little by little. Work it out. But it begins with him doing something no one could do. We were all slaves to the devil and lifelong fear of death is what it says. He comes in, like John Owen would say, and through his death puts death to death. We go free. And then as we look to him, now we start to look a little bit more like him. We start to experience more of that victory. So, is he your slave? Is he your savior? Is he your savior? Have you gotten on your knees those issues that are just holding you down? Those issues that you're stuck? This seems so basic we forget to do it. <laughs> we forget to cry out. We make game plans and strategize. And and we, we you know create flow charts and, and, and everything else before we just go, God, I can't do it. Get glory. Magnify the glory of your grace by doing it in my life. I can't. But I've watched you. I know you. You can. Do we know the incarnated word of that personal, deep level? Are we united vitally with him? Spirit by faith. Now, as we move into the second heading, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time here, um, at this point, I, I, you might be saying, okay, all, all well and good, Nick. Know the incarnated word. Know Jesus. It sounds nice, but Jesus isn't here. The incarnated word isn't here anymore. In fact, even in Revelation 12, we read it. He's been caught up to God and to his throne. He's not here. So how do I have this deep, intimate relationship with him if he's no longer here? I know he's here by his spirit. I know all those sorts of things. But what does it look like to press into the sun and to walk in victory with him? How do I know him in that way now? This question brings us then to the second heading. Know the inscripturated word. Know the incarnated word. Now know the inscripturated word. Namely, know the Bible. Know the scriptures. Know the word not only in person, but the word in the Bible. This is... This is the, I mean, we, we make it so weird, but it's actually quite relational. It makes sense. Follows the normal uh, um, laws of our relationships where, how do you know a person? You talk to them. You spend time with them. You let them talk to you. Well, well, this is God speaking to us. This is how we press in to know God. It's through his words to us. And so... Uh, Basically, I, I want to give us now, for, for the remainder of our time, five strategic ways that we can use the scriptures 
to press into relationship with the Son. And in that, start to experience more victory in resisting, overcoming Satan and his uh, activity in our lives. So five strategies using the scriptures. First, feast on the word. Feast on the word. Now, mind you again, all of this is built upon that fundamental principle, okay? Of We have said, I can't do it. Well, you can't do it. Now, in him, we can. Let's start looking at what that looks like. First, feast on the word. A fish, hear me on this, a fish won't bite when a fish is full. Hear me? You're not going to catch a fish if it doesn't have any appetite or desire for the worm. Satan's bait has no pull if I have no hunger, if I'm already satisfied, if I've been feasting on God. If you look at Jesus in our text there in the wilderness, Satan couldn't get at Jesus because he was full on the Father. He was full on the Father. That's why the first thing he quotes in response to the devil's uh, uh, attack is, is uh, man shall not live by bread alone. And when we keep reading, and in Matthew he records the full quotation, it says, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. In other words, Satan, you're coming at me with bread. i got something better than bread. It's the word of God. I've been feasting on the words of my father in the wilderness. Therefore, you could come at me with whatever you want, but, but you're not going to find audience here. My desires have been satisfied by my father. Or think of what he says in John 4.34, My food, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I'm feasting on my God. I am satisfied in doing his will. Therefore, it's interesting because when Satan saw, uh, Satan comes, he kind of sees this uh, exchange as inviting the son to trade stone, the stones of the desert, for bread. That sounds like a good exchange. The son saw this is a horrible deal. He saw, I'm trading the living bread of my father's word and presence for just the stone of, of, of a loaf. You see, he's looking at it, he said, that's not a good deal at all. I'd rather be here in the desert with stones but have the bread of my father's word than trade my father's word for the bread of all the kingdoms. Get out of here. He was satisfied with his father's word. Now this gets at the fact that temptation gains traction in our lives at the level of our desires. If you know this. That if, again, if the fish is full, fish isn't going to bite. Temptation gains traction only where there are unfulfilled desires. Mm, now that looks good. Mm, I am hungry. I want that. Now let me show you this from James. He's probably the clearest author on this point. This is James 1, 13, uh, or I'm sorry, 14 and 15. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, how? By his own 
desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Desire starts this whole thing. Desire looks at what's on the end of the hook dangling there and says, that is good. And that moves towards sin, which moves towards death. It's desire that gets the whole process started, which is why, again, James 4, uh, verses 1 through 2, he later says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your possession, or I'm sorry, your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. So in other words, all this sinning stuff and all this, this, this giving in to temptation, it starts back here with desires. I desire something I don't have. I'm not satisfied. And that kind of heart gives audience to the devil. That's when we start thinking twice about what he has to offer. But what if your desires are satisfied? Now, we live in the already not yet. We we, we live in the time before the fully consummated kingdom, right? So we are going to wrestle with this. The flesh is going to wrestle against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. But there is a way Jesus came so that we could be desired, or I'm sorry, we could be satisfied at the deepest place of our desires. That's why he came. I mean, he even says that himself. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. John 6.35 I've come to satisfy you. There's this mistaken notion, you guys, and perhaps you've fallen prey to it. I did at one point. There's this mistaken notion uh, among even Christians that, that, that think the Christian life is, is, is about killing your desires. Kind of holding back and, and just kind of stealing your soul so that you can make it to heaven. No way. The Christian life is not so much about killing your desires as it is about satisfying them on the right object. I'm the bread. I'm the living water. Come to me. He doesn't say, why are you desiring? You guys are letting your desires run rampant. He's saying, don't take your desires and go somewhere else with them. Come to me. I will fill you up. When you're filled up, suddenly, devil and what he has to offer doesn't look all that great. In fact, this is, I mean, this is how resistance worked out in my life. This is God's playbook. (laughs) This is how resistance and victory started to look in my life. When I came to know Jesus, or he came to know me, and, and he got a hold of me, started changing me, started, started sad, I started getting a sense of his love. Here's what happened. I was still a mess. Are you kidding me? He, he takes so much time. I'm still a mess. He takes so much time with us, has so much grace. But here's what started to happen. I mean, I was cussing, you know, I was looking at porn. I didn't see any of that as wrong. I didn't even understand these sorts of things. But suddenly, Suddenly, as I taste a superior pleasure in knowing him, here's here's how sanctification worked out in my life. I actually was scared to sin. Not because I thought I was going to go to hell. Nope. 
but because I was, I was sad that if I gave into that, I wouldn't be able to enjoy intimate fellowship with my Savior. That, that fellowship with Him was so good, I, I, I was like scared of sin because if I give into that, I, I know that in order to get that, I have to leave Him. And why would I leave Him? Are you kidding me? Get out of here. So, so stuff just started to fall off of my life, not because I was this legalistic effort and I'm going to do this in my own strength, but because of the gospel and his grace and love that he was pouring out on me. And, and in response, I obeyed him because I loved him. Make sense? That's what starts to happen. Again, it's just kind of the natural laws of life. We do this all the time. Why do you resist the, the, the pleasure of, of you know, chocolate cake? For the superior pleasure of looking looking awesome on the beach, right? With your six-pack, whatever it is. This is what we're doing all the time, is making decisions based upon what we want. What we think will satisfy. Well, when Jesus gets a hold of us, we start to go, dude, there's nothing that satisfies like him. Why would I choose that when I could have him? Now, how do we feast on him? What do we do? Where do you go to feast on God? Well, the, the you know... The first heading I gave here for this strategy gives that away. You go to his word. Psalm 119, 103. How sweet are your words to my taste. Sweeter than honey to my mouth. I just love getting to know you. I love talking to you. Learning about who you are. You know? He shows us who he is. So we're not given over to the defamation of character. I know who my God is. He's good. He's gracious. And he loves me. We're not given over to identity crisis because we spend time there. I know what the Son has accomplished for me and who I am in Him. You'll have no audience with me here, Satan. Won't give in to tyranny of the urgent because we know God's plan. I've read the end of the playbook. I know where this is going and, and it's worth the wait. It's worth the wait. Even if the road to get there is hard. So, my question for you, do we make space in our busy Silicon Valley lives to feast on his word? Do we make space to satisfy ourselves in the presence of Christ? He's laid a banquet before us. Let's come, eat, and be satisfied. The others I'm going to move quicker through. Uh, That's number one, feast on the word. Second strategy, fight with the word. Fight with the word. It is noteworthy that in Ephesians 6, when Paul is describing the whole armor of God that we are as, as, as believers to put on in our warfare against the devil, he gives, he lists, he identifies only one, only one offensive weapon that, that we are to carry. I mean, you have the belt of truth, the shield of faith, these other things, uh, but there's one offensive weapon that we're to put in our hands. Namely... The sword of the Spirit, which is, he says, the word of God. Verse 17 of Ephesians 6. Now again, this is precisely what we witness in Luke 4 with Jesus, is it not? He is not only feasting on the word. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of my Father. He's feasting, but he is also at the same time fighting with the word. It's, it's there in the wilderness where Satan thrusts at him with words of his own, right? Where's your father now? He brought you out here to die. 
Look at all these kingdoms. I'll give them to you now. Why would you wait? And so on. But to all of those sword thrusts, Jesus comes back at him with the words of his father three times, right? It is written, it is written, it is said. And he quotes from the word. He fights with the word. Satan's thrust is going to come for you. When cancer claims your kid, I, we just found out, Mike, I just went to a family reunion with this little guy. And the day after they get back, take him to the doctor. Kidney cancer. Two, I think he's two, maybe three years old. Kidney cancer. Had to remove his whole kidney. Now they're trying to determine what kind of cancer it is. Chemo, all the stuff. Two years old. And Satan's going to be there, you guys thrusting at you in those moments. Where is your God? You believe in a sovereign God? He could stop this? Why is He not? Are you kidding me? You should put an end to this. Walk away from a God like that. doesn't love you, not for you. It's wicked. What are you going to do? You're going to buckle? You say, no way. I might not understand my father's ways. And they hurt. And the Bible does not mince any words on this. We will hurt. But, it is written, I will never leave you, nor forsake you. And we put that sword back in the devil's heart. And pray to God that it starts to pierce our own as well. And help us to hold on. Let me ask you this. Is there a sword? Is the sword in your hand? When's the last time you picked it up? How many it is written have we stored up in our hearts that we might not sin against him? Psalm 119.11 Do you have any it is written in your heart? For the day of battle. Let me read you something from the archives of my journal. <laughs> I actually wrote this yesterday, nine years ago. Okay? I, I know that it's a little late, Ian. I'm sorry. All the mic stuff and everything. Forgive me. Um, I'll do my best. I'm going to read you this uh, from my journal on this point. It is no small thing. For the child of God to rise early in the morning and meet with Christ in scripture and prayer and worship. It is no optional thing if we are truly desiring to be of any use to God in this war. Any more that it is an optional thing for a soldier to take his shield or weapon to battle. What soldier wakes up late on the day of war? Choosing rather to get a few more hours of sleep than to prepare his armament and ready his weaponry. Indeed, many may say, can't I spend my devotion in the evening? After all, I must rise early for work and it's not so convenient for me then. To which I would respond, what good is a shield or weapon to an already wounded soldier? When taken up before the war, they are life and they are victory. When taken up after, they are mere bedside trophies in a hospital ward. 
Rise early, child of God. Christianity is not some American pastime. It is Christ versus Satan, heaven versus hell, life versus death, angel versus demon, righteousness versus sin, all out spiritual war. I don't mean to give a legalistic trip here and say, you got to get up early, this or that. But I am saying, man, this is life. Guys, I mean, just think about it. If we were in war, if, if war was raging around you, would you, would you not pick up a sword before he walked out the door? Oh, I'll take my chance. It's no big deal. We don't believe it's really going on. We don't believe that the, the devil knows his time is short and he's come at us. It's life. Take up the word and fight. Third, I'm going to try to put it into high gear here. Flee towards the word. Flee towards the word. Third strategy for using the word to get to the son and experience some of his victory over the devil. Flee towards the word. Second Timothy 2.22. Paul calls Timothy to, here it is, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Flee. Here's the reality. Sometimes we, we forget that the best way to fight temptation is actually to flee from it. We think, no, 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 stand your ground and start quoting scripture. Hey, listen, if scripture's not working, run. <laughs> Get out of there. You, can, you just remember Joseph, right? You remember that story? It's classic. Oh my gosh. It's just ridiculous. Where, where Joseph and Potiphar's wife and, and she thinks he's, he's cute or whatever and he's there alone in this house helping out his master and she's going, man. I got to get my hands on that boy. He's, he, you know, it actually says he, he's handsome and all this and good, pleasing to the eyes. And, and so she lays a hold of him, literally. And he's like, I got to get away. I got to get away. But she's got a hold of him. She's like, all right, there go my garments, man. You can have my cloak. Take my garment. She's got a hold. He slips out. He's out the door. Maybe buck naked, maybe in his skivvies. But he's saying, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. It's dedication. He's saying, listen, you know, I don't know if you've had those nightmares before where, you know, you show up at school and you're like in your underwear or whatever. That was a reality for this brother. He said, I don't care. I'm running through the streets. I'm going to get away from someone else's wife. It's not my wife. I'm not going to sin against my God. I'd rather be shamed. I'd rather be laughed at. I'd rather be mocked. I'd rather be uh, scandalized than to sin against my God. So are we fleeing like that? Are we so in love with the Lord that we're just, we're not even wanting to be near sin? Or, here's the opposite question, are we kind of like, where's that line, you know? Like, how many drinks? We're like, that's not really lust. I mean, that's just kind of lingering over God's beautiful creation. Or whatever. Where's the line? Is that how we're at? How close can I get to the fire without being burned? Is it this close? You know? We do this. We play these games. And if we're playing those games, we've already lost. We've already lost, you see. Satan's already won if we're there. Because we've missed the whole point of holiness and righteousness. It's not just to kind of like make our way to heaven in some moralistic way. It's because we so love him that we should be running towards him. Running away from anything that would lead us away from him. Fourth strategy. Fourth strategy. Fellowship around the word. Fellowship around the word. Um, I pulled up short on Paul's advice to Timothy a moment ago. In there in 2 Timothy 2.22. If you read it in full, this is what you see. Flee youthful passions, pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. 
Did you hear that? Flee, that's right, and pursue things in His Word like faith and righteousness and holiness. But do it with others. Do it with others. When you fall, I'm there to pick you up. When I fall, I hope you're there to pick me up. We're in this together. I can't read you this quote by Spurgeon, but it is good. You can find my manuscript online if you want to read it. But let me ask you this. Do you have those people in your life that you can get coffee with, you can call, you can text when life gets real, when Satan's at your door, and you can say, this is what I'm really going through. This is who I really am. I blew it again. I screwed up. Can you help me? Can you pray for me? Will you pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with me? Again, to use the analogy of going to war, would you go to war against a nation without an army? No way. Then why? Why would you attempt to go to war with the, against the cosmic forces of evil alone? Again, if we're there, if we're attempting that, we've already lost. Already lost. So I want you to see what we're doing here and these people sitting next to you as, as co-soldiers in this war. Let them in. Let them in. Let's let each other in. Let's pick each other up. Let's love each other well. Let's press each other forward as we pursue those things together. Let's fellowship together around the word. Fifth and finally. Fall upon the word. Fall upon the word. Here's what I mean. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say all morning. So please hear me. Please hear me. Fall upon the word. What I mean is, no one in this room is going to resist the devil perfectly. Not even one day goes by without me stumbling. We are works in progress. We are going to fall. We are going to fail. Christ's victory, to be sure, sets in motion and secures our own victory over the devil. But it is a victory that will work out in our lives little by little. I stumble every day. What are you supposed to do with that? I mean, what do you do? What do you do when the devil gets in your face, the accuser gets in your face and says, I saw that. And he has every right to be there because it's true. You did it again. You said you would never do that sin again and you did it. You're in that same place. What do you do? Does the devil win? No way. No way. Here is where our fundamental principle, vital union with Christ, is is so important and it comes back into play. Jesus has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And when He rose from the dead, I rose from the dead with Him so that now in Him, Though I am a sinner, you're right. I am also fundamentally a saint. Revelation 12, 11, again, we conquer him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. So what do you do? You fall upon the blood. 
He died for me. You're right to point out my sin. But you forgot that it's already been paid for. You fall upon the blood, and then you testify in the devil's face to it. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, we will conquer him. Falling on the blood, getting in his face. I'm with the Lamb. Get off of this man. If our guilt is handled appropriately, this is the amazing thing. Far from being fuel for the devil, it is actually made fuel for the blazing fire of the glory of God's grace. Do you understand this? The devil thinks he has something on you in that moment, but you actually have something on him. Do you understand this? Are you with me here? He thinks he has something on you. Your sin, you blew it, you failed. You're right. But that's just how good my God is. He paid for this. His blood is sufficient for this. And though I fall, I will rise. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. His blood will get the last word. And suddenly, where sin increased, grace abounds all the more. And it's the glory of God's grace that shines out in those moments. Not, not the darkness of your shame. Fall upon the word. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you that you've begun a good work in us and you will bring it to completion in the day that you come. Thank you that you start this and you finish it. You're the Alpha and the Omega. You lay the foundation for our victory and you walk it out with us until it's done. I pray, God, that you would help us. You would help us feast on your word. You would help us fight with your word, flee towards your word. You'd help us fellowship around your word, fall. When we fall, when we fall upon the word of your grace. Amen.